Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to either view this on YouTube or listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, or uh, Amazon Prime. And uh, we always want to hear from you. Let us know how we're doing. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net, fredjeffsmith at cox.net and let us know uh, how you're enjoying our podcast. I am honored today to have the Mayor President of East Baton Rouge Parish, Mayor Sharon Weston Broom, as our guest. Mayor, thank you for coming by today. Thanks for the invite. I'm glad to be here. So tell me how you ended up in Baton Rouge, because you're a northern uh, <laughs> girl, if I can say that, forgive me. Uh, and, and, and I thought I knew the story, but just before we started recording, you shared with me the story. So how is it that you ended up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Well, a Pastor, you know, my story um, is kind of captured in a book uh, by Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons. And that's the story of African Americans who migrated from the South and went North for a better life uh, because things were pretty rough uh, back in the day, as they say. And so my my father was born in Ethel, Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. In 1903, and uh, that wasn't too far removed from the Emancipation Proclamation, yeah. as you could imagine. So uh, there, were, uh, African Americans were still on a journey of of um, opportunities. And so uh, my dad, uh, as a young man, moved to Chicago. And my mother, um, in, uh, who was born in 1912, was in a little town called Kosciuszko, Mississippi. I know Kosciuszko. Yeah. Yes. And Oprah Winfrey put that on the map because yes. that's where she was from. So she migrated to Chicago. And uh, my parents met, married there. And um, after being there uh, for a number of years, of course, I was born and raised there. And uh, after being there probably 40, 50 years almost, uh, my dad had this aha moment, the older he became, that he just couldn't tolerate that cold weather anymore. And so um, I had recently graduated from college. My dad said, uh, we're moving south. And so, of course, I was about 21 then, and I uh, gave it some thought, but family has always been very important to me. You know, my uh, mom and dad uh, were just wonderful people, and so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm probably the one who can make this sacrifice and, mm-hmm. and still continue my journey in life. And so uh, we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My dad had family here as well, of course, being from Ethel. And uh, that was in 1979. Yes, ma'am. And um, I thought once I might leave uh, after they got settled, but I fell in love with the people here. 
I fell in love with the food, and I fell in love with the hot weather. I can remember my first Christmas. I didn't have to put on a coat. No. I had on a sweater. Yes. That's that was all. Of me. You know, that, that was that was it. That sealed the deal for me. Yes, Sunshine, nice Christmas, and so um, that's how my journey started here in Baton Rouge. So, <laughs> you your your educational background was in broadcast journalism or communication. Communications. And uh, so, when did the political bug strike you? Yeah, you know, I always, Pastor, when I look back uh, on my life, I see these two corresponding paths. You know, they're parallel. Um, I I saw the path of communications all through my life, Mm -hmm. you know. I always enjoyed, you know, reading poetry, uh, making presentations at church and BTU, uh, at school. Um, I can remember one of my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Gilchrist, I got up and recited something and she said, thank you, Reverend Weston. Because <laughs> I just took, I just enjoyed doing it. And so that path of communications was, that thread was always in my life. And so um, I remember when I was in high school, I spent a summer at Indiana a state university and a broadcasting seminar for high schoolers. And uh, so it was no surprise Uh, that when I went to college, I majored in communications and uh, thought that was where my journey was going to be, you know, as as an anchor Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, looking up to people like Carol Simpson. But also that other parallel was the parallel of leadership in that I was always active in school, whether it was student government, student council, whether it was the um, Black Student Association in college, I was always, those two paths were very consistent. And I think what happened, uh, Pastor, is that there was an intersection Mm -hmm. of of those paths that took place in 1988 when I felt a tug at my heart uh, to run for city council to help be a part of the solution. Never carved out a path of running for elected office. Mm-hmm. It, it evolved and never thought that my journey as a public servant would uh, last this long, but it, it just evolved. And I have to tell you something that, that kind of uh, rubs me the wrong way, and that's when people talk about career politicians. Yeah. Uh, because I believe that um, public service is an honorable calling. You know, I always tell people the part of public service that I'm involved in is a little different because I offer myself for public service, and then people have to say yay or nay yes if or they no. want me. Right. But I offer myself for public service, and so uh, that's been uh, that's been my journey, and that public service journey has now has been the intersection of all those things that happened when I was growing up, my communications and my involvement in in things like student government. So you've served on every level of government. You've served city, uh, city parish, Mm -hmm. uh, state, and now you're the chief executive of East Baton Rouge Parish. Help us to understand the distinction between being in a legislative position, which is pretty much what Metro Council is, and state rep and state senator. You've served in all of those capacities. And what it means to be an executive, to be mayor president. Mm-hmm. Help, help us understand the Yeah, difference. you know, um, <clears throat> certainly the legislative branch at the local level, I will tell you, um, you know, being on the Metro Council, 
is uh, you don't deal with a, a lot of philosophical issues because mm-hmm. r- really the core of what you deal with uh, ha- is surrounded with basic services at the at the local level, and uh, in the legislature in the ex- in the uh, legislative branch, I had the opportunity you know to deal with some more philosophical issues, um, and now coming full circle back to local government, but as the uh, in the executive branch, um, the the decisions that I make as the mayor president are certainly far-reaching. Uh, I have the opportunity, certainly, to set the vision and the tone. Um, uh, the level of influence is certainly is, is greater. Uh, the responsibilities are more voluminous. Uh, being responsible for over 4,000 employees, not only you know making sure that the services for the 450,000 people uh, of this uh, city are taken care of in this parish. Uh, so uh, the executive branch certainly carries a, um additional level of weight and responsibility, but I, I certainly believe that those other experiences help prepare me for this because my frame of reference certainly surrounding government in general mm-hmm. was, uh, was very strong. And when I was in the uh, legislature, I had the uh, privilege of serving as the uh, Speaker Pro Tem in the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate. So that leadership path certainly added value uh, to my role as, uh, as mayor president. Baton Rouge politics seems to be extremely divisive uh, at this point in time. I've lived here just about all my life, spent a few years down in Egypt. That's what I call <laughs> New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> but the Lord let me come back to the promised land. Uh, but I, as, as someone who's lived here all his life, I don't quite remember a time in my lifetime, I'm sure somebody who's watching or listening can take issue with, with what I'm about to say, where things have been so openly divisive, probably not since I was a very small child in the 60s. Uh, I've asked this question of others uh, who are who are either in political office or pursuing political office. The Metro Council, which is about to undergo a shift in, in, in uh, those who sit in those seats, has been divided not just politically but racially. Do you think that the divisions within the Metro Council are more politically motivated or politically rooted or more racially rooted, racially well, motivated? Well, I, I believe that there is an intersection of politics and race. Um, first of all, uh, you know, uh, we I believe that um, we do ourselves a disservice when we create districts of one race. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have districts where they're all white or all black, because those that are elected in that office will tend to cater to the the uh, dominant population instead of considering, you know, it, I think it would be a great exercise if we had diverse districts. Mm-hmm. So for, for the leaders, you know, for the council members to uh, use their influence to 
to unite people around shared goals for that particular district and for the city. Uh, but going back to your question about the divisiveness that we see, you know, on the council, um, I believe that it, a lot of it is a reflection of what has been going on nationally as well. I will tell you, when I was in the uh, legislature, um, uh, and I and I served in the legislature for 24 years, when I first started, you really didn't know who was a Democrat and who was a Republican unless they told you, mm -hmm. you know. So why is that? Well, that's because people would interact with one another. You, you know, you talk to one another. You go to this person for support. And, you know, sometimes it, you, you would eventually know their political ideology. Uh, but there was not the level of combativeness mm -hmm. that I even see just looking on at the legislature right now. It has grown and grown and grown. And I think what we have is a uh, a reflection of what we've seen on the national level that has trickled down uh, to state government and, in many instances, local government. Now, the issue is, can we get beyond that? Mm -hmm. And I really do believe we can. I believe what happened this year, uh, saddingly, uh, you know, a sad situation, uh, but one of those moments that people have captured uh, to move us forward, the, 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 the killing of George Floyd really brought the issue of race and racism to a broad audience. You know, I've heard people say that there were a lot of people who were at home mm -hmm. who watched that on television mm -hmm. and who, no matter what their political uh, label was, felt that it was horrific and wrong. And so it started people to thinking about race mm -hmm. and racism. And so then from there, we had conversations that evolved. We had corporations that started talking about this is wrong and we're committed to uh, equity and inclusion and, and dismantling systematic racism. And then you had even people here in Baton Rouge who said, we've got to do better. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want us to lose that uh, concern, lose that, that momentum around coming together around racial issues. But in order for us to do that, we have to uh, have a level of, we have to have a desire, you know, to want to, to see Baton Rouge close that, that racial uh, gap that exists. We have to have a willingness uh, on both sides to have, you know, empathetic conversations, to mm -hmm. have open-minded conversations with one another. Uh, but not only those conversations, Pastor, because so many times I hear people say, well, we've met on this, we've met on that, which is true. Mm -hmm. But we have to have corresponding action. Right. We have to have corresponding action moving forward, and we can't point the finger when that corresponding action takes place. I believe that kumbaya moments have have their place, but I'm fundamentally opposed to constantly coming to kumbaya moments <laughs> where we sit around a table and everybody holds hands and then we go back to our separate places and nothing really changes. I believe that dialogue, uh, protracted, raw, sometimes difficult dialogue is what really needs to take place. And then, as you say, action has to follow up on the dialogue. Uh, you, you mentioned 
about these one race districts. Recently, uh, a proposed change in the plan of government was brought to the Metro Council. And I'm curious as to what your mm -hmm. position, mm -hmm. we, we haven't <laughs> talked about it. I'm firmly opposed to it. The mm -hmm. whole idea of at large, at large mm -hmm. council districts uh, and and to me, what you're doing is you're asking for the parish to vote for three mayors. Mm -hmm. and, and I and, agree with and, that. And, and <laughs> I don't think that that's yeah. for the benefit of the yeah. parish. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, I believe that we ha uh, that certainly when you have a, a person who is uh, at large, it even makes it, you know, it's almost equal. Well, it is equal to the the mayor president in terms of the votes that you have to get, et cetera. Uh, I know that some communities have a modified version of that, mm -hmm. uh, and I I certainly think that the plan of uh, government uh, committee should look at some alternative methods. But it, it's not even just the at large; it's reapportionment. Yeah, it's reapportionment. You know, even in reapportionment. It, it is so obvious that some of the constructs of these districts are are uh, not only along the geographical lines, but they are on racial lines. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I wasn't going to bring this up, but for example, um, this is not a district, but this is an example of what can happen. Um, as you know, um, the proposed breakaway city carved out an area. Yeah. And that area excludes people of color. Because they lost the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we can't craft communities like that. Of course, we don't need breakaway communities at all. But when we do reapportionment, I believe that we have to look at those districts, you know, certainly uh, more intentionally. Um, so that there, there, there's more diversity mm -hmm. that represents. Look, the city and the parish. Yes, ma'am. That's what we. That's what we should do, and and that I believe will help us uh, as we um, as the community works towards shared goals on the council. I think that brings more understanding uh, uh, to the council. Uh, so I, I, I definitely think. While I don't think that. At large members are necessarily the the route to go. I do believe that there are other prototypes out there that perhaps give us a more inclusive council when it comes to constituents. You're a big proponent of uh, looking outside of the city to try to find solutions. Uh, you did that with law enforcement. Uh, and you have done that in other areas of uh, your administration. What is it that, uh, what's the level of opposition to your philosophy of looking outside and, mm -hmm. tr and trying to bring what you like to call best practices mm -hmm. into the parish? I wouldn't say that there's a heightened level of opposition around best practices in some spheres. There has been resistance mm -hmm. uh, because, let's face it, some of our uh, what, departments in city parish government are ingrained in a certain culture and attitude. 
Uh, and and there's this this belief among some that this is the way we've always done it, and, and we're that's what you hear. Yeah, that's what the we. The mayor hear. doesn't understand. <laughs> this is the way know, we. This is the way we've always done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know you cannot build a uh, vision of peace, prosperity, and progress around a narrative of this is the way we've always done it. You won't get there. Yeah. And, um, you know, leadership dictates that um, change is is usually inevitable if you're going to uh, uh, be progressive, you know, if you're going to make a better community. And we should be uh, delighted that we're trying to achieve goals of best practices mm-hmm. because that strengthens our city. It yeah. makes us a more attractive city to to outsiders. It makes us a, a stronger city and a, a stronger community. Um, you know, I have talked with now. I will say that there are some things we're doing right in Baton Rouge that other mayors look at. I've had mayors talk to me about our infrastructure mm-hmm. program and how we got that passed. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've reached out to other mayors. I can think of one right now to see what are they doing to curb crime in their community? You know, how are they addressing different issues? Because there are a lot of similarities that, that mayors experience in their cities. You may be a big city or a small, medium-sized city, but there are some common threads and common denominators that we all share mm-hmm. uh, as 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 uh, as mayors, and so I want to hear what what are y'all doing to do that uh, address this issue, and 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 I think best practices should be the standard uh, for our city. With the uh, push that's being made uh, by certain corporations, as we're recording this, there's a meeting going on right now uh, by. Uh, a multi-billion dollar corporation applying for uh, tax credits. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, ITEP is, mm-hmm. it, it's a state program, but it affects local governments. I'm opposed to corporations getting uh, uh, permission to not pay mm-hmm. property taxes. I wish that somebody would let me not pay property taxes. It doesn't work out that way. Uh, it's not really specifically the mayor's task to deal with that, but I'm sure that you have a position on it. Mm-hmm. Would you care to share your, your opinions about ITEP? Yeah, I've, I've had a number of discussions surrounding ITEP, and, and my position is that we have a law in place that um, uh, you know was handed down from state government, in essence, that gave local communities council school boards an opportunity to weigh in on these applications. And uh, I believe we haven't even had the opportunity to stay the course to see this be effective, to see if it works. And I know that there's another level that has been added where now if a company doesn't agree with uh, what a council has said or what the school board has said, they can now go uh, and appeal um, on the state uh, level, which is might and be what's going on given now, by the governor because he he, he was feeling pressure from <laughs> corporations with regard to yeah. what he had done. You can't say that. I can. That's so, what happened. So that's the other that's the other level that's been added. Yes. But um, I do believe that the you know the original process has not has not 
had a chance to work wow. really. Now, this is what I will say because uh, I, as mayor, I have conversations with corporate America, I have conversations with community groups. I believe that there is some, um, how would I say it? I think the fear that exists on both sides a little bit mm-hmm. could be dismantled mm-hmm. if there was more. Uh, conversations that took place and more understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I believe that that, that uh, some of the corporate folks feel like, oh, this group is just against us no matter what. They don't like us. And, and I don't see it like that. No. I, I don't see it like that. And I think that we can have some stability moving forward if there was less uh, positioning adversarially and then coming together and see what okay what is the common ground and I know that it's been tried at some level mm-hmm. but some things <laughs> pastor some things come out with prayer and fasting yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. so that's what you know we may it, it, it's go, it may take a little bit more time to get there Louisiana has <laughs> the most progressive tax system in the nation and you tax poor people at a much higher rate than you tax everyone else and to me, it's just greed that in addition to the advantages that you already have in taxes, you want to be exempted from paying your fair share in property taxes, which provide for infrastructure, which provide for schools, which provide for the, the higher quality of life that we say we want for every yeah. one. You served on, on, on the state level. Uh, what's the opposition to reforming our tax system? What's the oh, what, even black one. folk get mad at me when I say this? What's the opposition of getting rid of the homestead exemption? It's one of those sacred cows that you know. It's, I, I dealt with that as uh, the whole tax structure issue, right? When I was in the legislature, and it's almost. I don't know what it would will take uh, to have those type of changes because people have, uh, I don't know even, I can't even remember when the homestead exemption started. You were long. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. You I know. I know it was a long time. It's been in existence for, and so I, I believe that people certainly, some people believe that we need to examine our tax structure. Mm-hmm. But, it almost has to come from a separate body other than the legislature. Because when if you are a legislator and you start talking about tampering with the homestead exemption, you might be in your last term as a state <laughs> representative. Well, state I saw it happen to Buddy Rome. Yeah, because so. people, people feel so strongly about, yes. about the homestead exemption. Yes. And that is something, you know, it's sacred. It, 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 people see it as sacred because they see it as the maybe the one thing that's right now that's saving me money. But if you look at the overall tax structure, maybe it can be spread out in a different uh, different way. Uh, and I don't know the total uh, resistance to it other than it's been part of the fabric of Louisiana since Huey Long. Yes. <laughs> when you came into office, uh, you had two immediate things that you had to deal with. One having to do with the Alton Sterling uh, killing, which took place just before he assumed office. The other had to do with the historic floods that took place uh, in August of uh, 2016. You embraced both. You, gr- you, you grabbed 
hold of both. And in my opinion, you did an outstanding job. What do you count as your greatest accomplishments in your first term? I count those two as being very high. What, what do you count? Um, I, you know, um, I probably would put those two at the top of uh, my list because um, I remember, I think it was either my first week or second week, and I don't know, did you come to that meeting that I had with uh, some of the, about the whole police reform? Yes. Yeah, and that was like when I first started because I knew that that was a, uh, a critical issue that we had to address, and so I brought together members from the faith-based community, nonprofits, et cetera, and we talked about how can we implement reform, some uh, not just reform, but some meaningful changes in our police department so we would not have a recurrence of what happened uh, in that officer-involved shooting. And as a result, we came up with uh, putting uh, use of force uh, in policy, you know, as part of Baton Rouge Police Department policy, mm -hmm. because what had been said is that, oh, well, we're taught this in the academy, but accountability does not occur unless it's policy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were able to establish use of force policies. We were able to establish de-escalation. And, um, you know, we started down other paths of implicit bias training and et cetera. And so I, I say that because now in this season that we're in, while we still have room for improvement in terms of our uh, law enforcement and our Baton Rouge Police Department, we were really on the front end of these reforms that many of my uh, colleagues and mayors and other cities just started dealing with because of what happened to George Floyd. Uh, I remember I was on a phone call with uh, a mayor in another city um, on the West Coast, mm -hmm. and we were on a panel, and a Zoom panel, and she said, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to take a bold step, and I'm going to get body cameras for our officers. That was this year. Well, there was a committee that started discussing body cameras before I came on. Mm -hmm. When I became mayor, I immediately took action and funded body cameras for all of our Baton Rouge police officers. Yeah. And so steps like that, I believe, put us in in the front. You know, Lord knows where we would be at this point now if we hadn't done those things early on. And we continue to we continue to work towards that. So I would say, you know, our efforts towards um, and, and, and pastor, people don't sometimes when they say uh, when you use the term police reform, they take it negatively. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that for me, reform for our Baton Rouge Police Department means that we're building the best group of public servants that adhere to 21st century policing practices that have been outlined uh, several years ago uh, under the Obama administration with what police departments all over uh, look at as against the backdrop of what they deliver uh, because they cover all areas. And so, you know, my goal has always been to get us to achieve those pillars of 21st century uh, policing. And when, 
And sometimes that's a, that's a challenging, you know, uh, task when people say, well, this is how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. So the work continues. But I would say our reform there, uh, our um, work on flood mitigation mm-hmm. in terms of the dollars that we've received, uh, whether it's our stormwater master plan or the money for the five tributaries or making our DPW more effective. Uh, and lastly, I would say, you know, our largest infrastructure project in the history of Baton Rouge. I really can't stop there, though. I have to say, you know, because this is very important. Mm-hmm. There was not only a hue and cry for um, you know, police reform, flood mitigation, traffic, transportation, which we address. But the issues around disinvested communities, um, mm-hmm. that was that was a hue and cry as well. Um, and we didn't turn our back on that appeal. Um, we've delivered in North Baton Rouge yes, with uh, a number of projects, whether it's Howell Place or now, Thank God the $5 million we've gotten for the Plank Road Corridor Project. Uh, You know, there were people who wanted me to just do a tram that was about three miles, uh, and I rejected that. I wonder which part of town that was. (laughs) (laughs) I rejected that, and now we've got a, a, you know, bus rapid transit that's going to start at Harding and go all the way down to LSU. And so I'm I'm thankful uh, for that work that we've done in in disinvested communities and the work continues i mean we can't hang our hat on that we got to keep it moving you know we've got the choice neighborhood grants for ardendale area um and we we got to keep keep rolling with that and I, I i love the fact uh that we have some young entrepreneurs who came out of those communities who are now investing in those disinvested communities. And I want to help empower them as they lift up their communities as well. Two quick questions. Mm-hmm. Are you in favor of the mass, the, 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 the speed train between Baton Rouge and New Orleans? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, uh, you, you mentioned contracts and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been my opinion. Mm-hmm. Please correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong that the headline has always been we're going to make it more uh, accessible to minority contractors to play a role in government contracts. But there's always a fine print problem where these entrepreneurs, minority entrepreneurs, often don't meet the guidelines in order to be qualified for contracts. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that your administration can do to help mitigate that problem? Absolutely. We just, uh, in addition to our equity and business seminars that we host, where we give um, uh, minorities, small businesses, um, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, opportunities to understand how to navigate the process, we now have a joint venture as a result of our disparity study that we did where um, uh, Baton Rouge um, government, city parish government, along with um, Breck and uh, the Baton Rouge Airport, we are now doing a joint DBE certification process. Help me with DBE, please. Uh, doing business, disadvantaged business enterprises. Okay. And so um, in 
in uh, getting people to get certified, we will be training them in that process of, of what they need to be certified, which will take them to the next level mm-hmm. of securing uh, contracts mm-hmm. with each one of the entities. And so also it means that if you do this joint certification, then it means you can do work with City Parish, you can do work with Breck, and you can do work with the airport. So um, we're definitely trying to make it very clear and carve out a path through training and information for those minority businesses who desire to do business uh, with City Parish uh, government. And um, I- I'm glad about, I'm very delighted about the work that we've been doing in that space. I. I saw a young uh, lady last night who is has her own company as an engineer. She's an African American female, and you know she was very grateful because she's been able to do work um, uh, with the city. But mm-hmm. prior, she said, you know, it wasn't there. It wasn't a priority, um, uh, you know, in in past years. And so, um, all of that help strengthen our community, Pastor. You know, some people think, oh, well, you're caring about one community over another. No. You know, um, um, we have to understand that when we bring equity and inclusion to our community, it makes our community as a whole a stronger community. Yes. And so um, that's what I want people to understand. It's not that I care about one group over another or this or that. You know, I care about this entire city and parish, but I recognize that as I, as I use in my simplistic teacher mode, you can't have part of your city at a D grade and part at an A grade and think it's okay. You got to get that D grade up because we're, we're all one city and one community, one parish. Huh. Yeah, so... <sighs> St. George, mm-hmm. uh, we, we touched on it, and mm-hmm. I said I was going to leave it open. <laughs> but it, it, it's a peeve of mine. Um, I lived in that area during the first time that they were doing the petitions, mm-hmm. uh, and my wife was determined at that point, we ain't living under St. George. <laughs> if that means we have to move, we ain't living under mm-hmm. St. George. Subsequently, we, we, we did move. Uh, as you said, they pared down the geography in order to fit the demographic that was uh, favorably disposed toward uh, forming another city. Uh, they got the vote that they needed. But you have asked a simple question. Show us the data mm-hmm. that lets us know how you're going to handle the finances of this so that it is not a a burden on the rest of the parish. And they have not been able to provide you with that information. Uh, What what do you think uh, will be the outcome of, of, and and I know it's a court case, Mm -hmm. but but, but what, what are your thoughts about where this is going? Well, my thoughts are that if the proponents of the breakaway city of St. George had a plan, that they would have showed it to us by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that before they even started this effort, that there should have been a plan. Uh, they should have been transparent with the people who would be impacted in that area, as well as all of us in the city and parish. 
uh, with their plan of action. Well, there was a plan. But <laughs> the plan was an independent school system. <laughs> yeah, the, but the, that's the, not the plan a, wasn't wasn't yeah. an actual city. municipality. Yeah, the plan yeah. was an independent uh, yeah, school right. system. But uh, now you got a you've asked for a city. Yes. And so you the vote was okay. Let's let's have a city. But now there are some subsequent efforts that need to take place. Okay, what is your plan for a city? How are the taxes going to go up? Yes, uh, you know, they will. They, yeah, <laughs> and the, the taxes. Um, what about your, um, uh, you know, your legacy costs? How's that going to yes. be impacted? Uh, what about, uh, what are you going to do in a crisis? This city would be the size of Lake Charles, about 86,000 people. My uh, good friend, Mayor Nick Hunter, um, who's a first-term mayor, has had calamity after calamity just in a a quarter, yeah. you know, of this year. And how how who would be leading you out of this or leading you through this? And how would how would that how would who would be the person who would uh, devise a emergency management plan for a city of that of that size? How would you navigate that? Uh, and what kind of dollars would it take mm-hmm. to do that? But even beyond that, what are your expectations of city parish government? What do you want city parish to pay for? Yes. What responsibilities do you want us to carry? All of that should be mapped out in a plan. If you build a house, you're not going to build a house without a plan. Yes. Your your architect is going to have a plan. They just, you just don't say, oh, I want a house, a five-bedroom house, two bathrooms, and they're like, okay. You know, e- e- even if e- even if there's a prototype, it's a plan yes. in terms of constructing it. Yes. If you are a business person and you want a loan from the bank as a business, what is your business plan before we give you this money? So plans are part of uh, creating uh, and, and establishing, whether it's your business, whether it's your house plans, you should definitely have a plan for a city that size. And the people should know it. Transparency. One of the things, Pastor, that we've been uh, very focused on in my administration is transparency. Mm -hmm. You can go to our website. You can see through open checkbook all the checks that we've written. You can see the money, your tax dollars, where they're going. All of that is transparency. And we haven't even been able to get a level of transparency from the organizers in how they're going to establish this city. And so contrary to what some people believe, I'm not, we're not uh, protesting the election. What we're saying is prescribed by state law. Since you couldn't give me a plan just by me asking for one as the mayor president, law prescribes that I have the legal ability to ask for a plan. Sure. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Sure. All I want is a plan. I understand. And I think if you if they had one by now, I would have seen it. It's interesting that people are uh, filing to be annexed into Baton Rouge and not into mm-hmm. St. George, which means that there are a whole lot of other people who are looking for the same things that oh, you're yeah. looking for, and they have not been able to see it mm-hmm. either. Uh, I just wanted to make that point. <laughs> I don't like St. George. Uh, the, the whole idea of St. George is, is, is problematic for me. Getting back to law enforcement, just a couple more items, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your time. 
I think that one of the best things that you ever did was hire Murphy Paul as chief of police. I think he has been outstanding and kudos to you for hiring him, selecting him. You have not had the most wonderful relationship with the Baton Rouge Police Union. Uh, and uh, would you would you care to speak about uh, the the union versus the chief the yeah. union. <clears throat> well, well, can I start off talking about the chief? Yeah. <laughs> the chief. I, you know, I am um, so thankful that we have uh, Chief Murphy Paul as our police chief. I have grown to respect him even more since the first decision uh, of hiring him. I um, I tell him all the time. I I know that was one of the best decisions I made made hiring him. Um, he's certainly had. He's he's had to deal with, uh, you know, the the whole mindset of this is where we this is how we've always done it. But he's he's stayed the course. So kudos to him. Um, what I think people need to understand is that um, the Baton Rouge Police Union is a separate entity from the Baton Rouge Police Department, mm-hmm. and. Some people think that when you talk about the union, you're talking about the department, two different entities. The department is the department. The union is a group, an organization that represents many of the officers in the department. Um, I have not really uh, picked a fight with the union, but I cannot condone, uh, you know, behavior that does not help move this city forward mm-hmm. in terms of um, the progress for our Baton Rouge Police Department. Um, you know, you cannot be an obstru- you cannot condone bad behavior among the ranks uh, just because of the brotherhood, sisterhood. Uh, true leadership dictates that you have to, when something is wrong, that you should be. If you're an organization, it makes. It makes your organization and the, the members, it, it taints them when you have people, you know, bad apples in your organization. And no matter what you, you know, it's you, you, you stick with them. And so I just think that there are some course of action that could be improved with the union uh, that could show that that they really want to uh, work collaboratively uh, with um Chief Paul, that they want not only what's best for the members that they represent, but they want what's best for this city and parish. And I believe um, demonstrating that would certainly um, remove a lot of the the adversarial tone that surrounds that organization. You said that so nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you have not picked a fight with the union, but the union has certainly tried to pick a fight with you, and they've done it consistently and repeatedly. And uh, well, you were very, very nice uh, about it. Uh, the police officers' bill of rights—that's uh, a state legislature thing, not not a city thing, but it impacts uh, municipalities. I've, I've been serving on. Uh, a state legislature, DS, police de-escalation okay. committee yeah. uh, that Senator Fields created. put together. Uh-huh. And, and I have learned a couple of things from this. And one of the disheartening things is you don't often know where to go to get relief for the questions that you mm-hmm. have. 
Some things are municipal, some things are state, Correct. some things are geographic regions, mm -hmm. and uh, th there seems to be no uniformity to that. But when it comes to the police officer's bill of rights, the, the, the pervasive belief is that police officers receive a level of indemnification uh, that regular citizens or our non-police officer citizens don't receive, and and people are uh, irritated and right. angered by that. Uh, I know it's a legislative thing. You're the mayor, mm -hmm. but you do have a, a voice mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about the police officers' bill of rights? Well, I will tell you first and foremost that you're on point when you talk about the different levels where the answers are, right? Because people come to us and they're like, well, why can't you do A, B, C, D, E, you know, with this officer? Why can't you do, you know, and and that police bill of rights impacts uh, a lot of the processes that exist in the Baton Rouge Police Department that the chief has to adhere to. Mm -hmm. um, I am hearing from community members and, you know, even people in law enforcement that it certainly needs to be revisited, which I believe may be one of the outcomes of Senator Fields' uh, uh, commission. Uh, but I, I also know that many people who supported it uh, didn't realize the impact that it was going to have mm -hmm. on uh, local uh, governments in terms of uh, reform and making changes when necessary. So um, I, I certainly think that it should be revisited. Uh, and this commission, I believe, is a good um, uh, point of discussion for people to really understand. Um, and, and, and Pastor, let me say this. I, I, I think... You know, I think that people recognize that we are not against the police, you know. Um, you and I probably know, may have family members, friends. I have friends. several members of this church, church. members of the Baton Rouge Police Department. Exactly. I have friends, I have neighbors who are police officers, and we value uh, the role that they play in keeping our community safe, Absolutely. and we thank them. Uh, I believe what we have seen over the years is that there have, you know, there's been an, an increase of um, uh, behavior by certain officers that's very concerning for communities of color. And uh, the goal is to improve that. Mm -hmm. to, 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 um, and one of the things that Chief Paul is doing, which I love, he's bringing in community organizations and individuals who've had certain experiences with officers so they can share in a non-threatening environment how they interpret their uh, interaction and what has happened. So, 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 these, so our new officers coming on will have a better sense of what the community is really feeling, what organizations really think, and uh, hopefully they will put that in their toolkit, mm -hmm. you know, as they guard and protect as they serve uh, and protect. And so I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, our, our new um, classes are, are um, diverse. They're they look like the city and, mm -hmm. you know, parish in which we uh, live in. And I, I was so happy to hear one uh, recent graduate who said, and his father was a police officer. And so I guess he's second generation maybe. Um, 
he said, I grew up in this community. Mm -hmm. I know this community. I want to serve this community. And so that was very refreshing because here you have a young man that, you know, obviously understands the community that he grew up in and not only understands it, but has a heart to serve the community. And I believe we know that our officers put their lives on the line. We, we, we thank them for their service. But when we hear about community policing, I think what that young man just said epitomizes what community policing, part of the community policing uh, scenario. And, and so I would certainly would like to see that uh, grow. But I definitely think that, um, that the uh, Bill of Rights will be revisited and examined, especially, you know, when I was a legislator, um, oftentimes we had to come back and tweak what we said, legislation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, all of it wasn't necessarily thrown out, but after it was implemented, they were like, well, this might be a little problematic. This might be a little problematic. So let's, you know, let's uh, amend it mm -hmm. or tweak it a little bit mm -hmm. moving forward. What are you, what are your expectations about redistricting uh, statewide as a result of the census? Do, do you think that we're going to get a little bit more of, of the balance that you were speaking of uh, with regard to Metro Council districts when we redistrict for the state? Uh, because right now, uh, there seems to be a preponderance of conservative Republican uh, uh, districts that exist within the state of Louisiana. I, I believe that, uh, so at the end of the day, a lot of what goes on at the state legislature, as you well know, and it it, it um, ends up in who has the most votes. Mm -hmm. You can have a good idea. Uh, you can have a great district that you want to see uh, happen as a result of redistricting that you think is fair, equitable. And uh, if you don't have the votes, it doesn't happen. Uh, but that doesn't mean you give up. That's where advocacy among citizens is, is important. Uh, citizens have the power of advocacy. And so it's, it's important that during this season of redistricting that people pay close attention and that they let their voices be heard in this process. One of the processes where we talk about letting people uh, that your voice is heard is at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't just stop there. When you go down to a hearing that's taking place on redistricting and you've looked at the map and you see some concerns that you have, you should you should speak up. Or if there's a plan that you that you embrace that you think will, uh, you know, make uh, representation more equitable you should you should say something about that and I I and it I will tell you this redistricting uh, takes some courage and it takes some intentionality mm -hmm. uh, to make it happen and look I, I'm gonna be realistic there's some give-and-take in the process we you know there, there's some negotiation in the process but I believe that we and and hopefully everybody filled out their census. I'm optimistic that maybe we can see uh, uh, another district created on the congressional uh, level. Uh, I don't know where it's going to come out of, oh. it could, it could, it, it, but there are some opportunities. Let me say, I think there are some opportunities. You're there. more uh, optimistic about that than, than, <laughs> than I am. 
I'm more concerned about these 70%, 75%, 80% white districts, 70, 75, 80% black districts, uh, which is exactly what you were speaking of on the Metro mm -hmm. Council level. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I live in an 85% white uh, district, uh, my representative isn't going to care a whole lot about what I think because I don't represent a big enough, uh, my constituency is not large enough for him to, to give any more than surface attention to. Mm -hmm. if, if we had more racially balanced uh, state districts, uh, state legislature, state senate, then I think that legislators would have to pay a little bit more attention to what it is that you say. Mm -hmm. And 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 so my hope, forget about the Congress, my <laughs> hope is that on the state level yeah. that we see uh, some some positive changes where that's concerned. Last question, I'm, I, want, I want to, last topic, and, and uh, COVID. Mm. Uh, as some people are starting to call it out, the COVID. Uh, <laughs> Where is East Baton Rouge Parish with regard to COVID-19? Because there, we see on the national level mm -hmm. that spikes are taking place in other mm -hmm. parts of the country. How are we doing with regard to COVID? Well, w compared to other uh, states and areas, we've been on a, a good track in terms of COVID mitigation. But I'm a little concerned of recent numbers that have c come out with our uh, positivity rate. Mm -hmm. And the positivity rate means, the, you know, the number of positive cases within people who are getting tested mm -hmm. it is is elevating and so that means that we could be going in reverse to uh, situations and circumstances that existed in phase one and phase two mm -hmm. so my message and I'm sending out a strong message these days is that you've heard this term we can't succumb to COVID fatigue mm -hmm. I know people, you know, but this has been going on the, almost a whole year, nine months. Yeah. Uh, and after a while, people get tired. They want to see their friends. They want a fellowship. They want to party. They want to get together. But all of that adds to a resurgence. Mm -hmm. And so my message is we got to wear these we got to wear these masks. We've got to social distance. You know, we've got to mitigate and make sure that we're doing those basic procedures of, of uh, staying within your pod of people. You know, your home Thanksgiving is approaching. And there are people who want to, I, I heard somebody say, well, we have, you know, about 30 people over our house. I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if that's going to be a good yeah. mitigation effort right there, you know. I I, and I get the fam, more than the family together. Uh, but, um, you know, we have to be very guarded as we go into the holiday season that we, and, and our medical professionals are telling us we need to be on guard because we are setting ourselves up on another trajectory of uh, increase that's going to set us back. And listen, I have always said that we have got to look out for the health and well-being of our citizens, and we can also do look out for our economy as well. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. But, you know, we've made some strides in terms of opening our economy. Yes. And I know people don't want to see us go backwards because they've been clamoring about opening up the economy. We've made some progress in that area. So, we, you know, from a, a, an economic and business point of view, if we don't, if we don't mitigate, if we don't 
pay attention to what's going on in the health side of this COVID-19, then it, it's going to have a, um, um, you know, an impact on us going back to some phase one and phase two uh, issues. So I'm encouraging everybody, don't let your guard down. Uh, make sure that you uh, stay on this path of wearing a mask and social distancing. And it's, it, we, you know, we now have over 40 sites where people can get tested. We've come a long way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, we've, we've, we've recognized the health disparities that exist uh, that are embedded in COVID-19 mm -hmm. as well. And we've been working on, on those disparities, but we now have 40 testing sites. And so we also know, Pastor, that COVID is not a respecter of persons. And so even with those people who have underlying conditions, there are people all over, young, middle-aged, old, black, white, who are, uh, um, you know, having COVID. So uh, the coronavirus. And so we, we, we've We've got to dismantle any political uh, politics uh, that surrounds, you know, this this pandemic, and we've got to uh, take what I call some um, embrace some short-term discomfort for long-term gain. The runoff is scheduled for December fifth. Uh, we have tried uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, to reach out to your opponent who has seen fit to uh, be otherwise engaged. That seems to be the language that his campaign is using. Uh, we're here. I, I just wanted you to know we, we are here in, in case you're, you're, you're interested in responding to what we're saying. Uh, uh, so I typically ask the question of my guests mm -hmm. about uh, uh, whether or not you want your children to be raised in Baton Rouge. Uh, I know children make their own choices and what have you, but uh, I believe in Baton Rouge. I love Baton Rouge. And, and I see a whole lot of brain drain that takes place where we educate them here and then they go off in other places. Uh, if you want to talk to that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to use the last couple of minutes to talk about uh, the runoff, please feel free to say whatever you want to say. I will say two things. Uh, I want our best and brightest to stay in Baton Rouge, and I want to continue to create an environment that's attractive, which means jobs and opportunities. Uh, I want to nurture that entrepreneurial spirit that I see among so many of our, our young people and continue to pursue opportunities like we had with eBay's retail revival program and our uh, Baton Rouge resilience and our procurement opportunity program so they will uh, stay here. Uh, but I believe that we're in a moment where the power of leadership cannot be underestimated in this season that we're in. And uh, I certainly believe, and I thank the people for entrusting me over the past four years to lead in uh, some, uh, some critical situations. Uh, but I believe in Baton Rouge. I believe in the people here. And I believe our better days are ahead. Uh, you know, we all know from a biblical perspective, as I said earlier, that sometimes we have those valley experiences, you know. Uh, but I believe our better days are those mountaintop experiences await us. If we all work together, we can see it happen. Thank you, Mayor President, for taking the time to share with us today. I have truly enjoyed 
this conversation. Thank you all for viewing. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next time.